All right. Uh, amen. So uh, off we go. And we are now coming to a very critical juncture in the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, if you buy commentary series, they often come in multi-volumes. And the volumes switch right here where we're about to change from Genesis 11, which was basically a fast forwarding throughout all of history to suddenly coming to a screeching halt so that we can consider with great care and with deep contemplation what God is now about to do. And in a sense, everything has been backdrop to prepare us for what is really critical at this moment. And that is going to be the call of Abraham. And the title of my sermon today is The Power of the Call. And we'll read in Genesis, starting in verse uh, chapter 11, in just a moment, where Abraham will be identified out of all the nations that had been scattered from the Tower of Babel. And as that got winnowed down to just a single family line through Terah and, and Abraham, now we, we begin to look at just this single man, this Abram character, that appears on the landscape of the book of Genesis. And we see all of human history turn at this very point. All of it turns and has had an astounding effect. As a matter of fact, those who claim some sort of knowledge of God through Abraham count for 58% of the world's population today. Well, well, well over 3 billion people all point to this passage as the turning point of finally understanding the great will of God because a single man here was called by God. And that call by God, when it's by God, is a powerful call. We have the word in English, vocation, which is a Latin uh, root. But the idea of a, of, a, of a calling is the word vocation. And we all have different vocations, uh, whether that be cupbearer, Indian chief, fireman, astronaut, preacher, teacher, whatever it might be. You have those different vocations, but you have one greater calling, one greater vocation, that you have a transcendent purpose that gives meaning to your candle making or your fire chiefing or your teaching. That greater calling, which gives purpose to any of those activities, is your calling from God himself. And the calling from God is a powerful, powerful thing. Before I read the passage, I want to give an illustration that's an interesting one. It's probably the first time you'll ever hear about this man in the middle of a, of a sermon. Uh, but the man that I want to talk about is a man that was so astoundingly affected by his call that many historians really are uh, amazed that there was such a transformation in a single man. Because oftentimes you hope for it. You hope that a calling will change someone. But oftentimes you're disappointed by it. And by the way, we should always pray for that, especially for, for, for our uh, leaders of our country right now, is to pray that the weight of the calling does have its effect. But the man that gives you hope in that regard is this very man. Yes, Chester A. Arthur. Now, why Chester A. Arthur? Yes, he had great sideburns, mutton chops. 
But the reason being is that Chester A. Arthur lived at a time like our time today. You've, you've maybe heard in different news reports of this age being referred to as a second gilded age. Gilded age is this idea that there's income inequality, that there are the haves and the have-nots. And it harkens back to the first gilded age. And that would be in the, the late 1800s, 1870s, 80s, 90s. And during that period of time, during the gilded age, you did have the haves and the have-nots. And in government, you had a lot of corruption that rode the wave of that gilded age. And none other than the, the party boss of New York could have been more influential in this gilded age and in the governmental aspect of the corruption of that gilded age. And that party boss's name was Roscoe Conklin. He was the senator from New York, but he was more importantly, he was the, the, the puppeteer who behind the strings pulled the strings on his puppets and no one was more of his puppet than his puppet and protege, Chester A. Arthur. Uh, they worked hand in glove, Arthur as Conklin's uh, lieutenant. And at that time, in, in New York, there was no income tax in America. 70% of the monies that filled the coffers of the federal government came through the port of New York. And so the collector of customs, the collector at the port of New York, had the kind of the, the choicest of the spoils system job. Now the spoils system was at its height in the 1870s, 1880s. Uh, under the second term of Ulysses S. Grant, there was a lot of corruption. And one of the things that he did is he listened to Conklin, who said, you know, I got this guy that if you could put in charge of the port of New York, you'd be doing me a good favor. Who is that guy? Chester A. Arthur. So Ulysses Grant appoints Arthur to be in charge of 70% of the revenue that comes into the United States. All told, they estimated that his income through this activity was somewhere around uh, five, uh, I'm sorry, $50,000 a, a year. Now, so uh, what, what, that today's money, that is $5 million. The average skilled worker made $500 a year. So Arthur is also a dandy. There's nothing about him that you would really appreciate. I mean, he liked fine hotels, fine clothing. He spent lots and lots of money on, on luxuries all of the time. But something then began to develop that then put this dandy, this party hack, this poster child for the corruption of the spoils system suddenly in the national spotlight. And what happened was that James Garfield was nominated to be the presidential candidate for 1880. And when he was nominated, this annoyed Roscoe Conkling because it wasn't one of his guys. And so to make sure that New York was in and all of their electoral votes were in, they then, in, in a sense, tipped their hat to Conkling and allowed his hand-picked choice to be the vice presidential candidate. And who was that person? Chester A. Arthur. And everybody was appalled that the, the party hack of all party hacks, the most incompetent man ever to rise to the level of vice president, so the, uh, the, the newspaper article said in that day, this was going to be 
on the ticket for the presidency and in one of the most narrow elections of all time, Garfield Arthur ticket won. Uh, and as it won, then it became time for the spoils of the election. And as that was going about, interestingly, a man who thought he would get the spoils of victory uh, was not granted a special position by Garfield. And he was so incensed by this that he went to the Union Station up in D.C. as Garfield was getting on a train to go to, does anybody know where? What he called the most beautiful place on earth. Maybe that's a good hint. Not West Virginia, the most beautiful place on earth. New Jersey. Not just anywhere in New Jersey, the beautiful Jersey Shore, right below Long Branch, just north of Deal, in a place called Elbron, which is, by the way, where I live. Beautiful. <laughs> but, but that is where he was going. But he, he didn't get there at first. Why? Because this spoil seeker shot Garfield. It was July 2nd, 19, uh, 1881. Uh, and then Garfield then lingered under the care of incompetent doctors all through that summer, all the way into September. And in order to maybe perhaps encourage him, they built special train tracks to get him all the way right there to Elbron, to the beach uh, right there in Elbron, uh, where they hoped that he could recuperate. Now, New Jersey has great power, but it can't really raise the dead. And ultimately, Garfield did die. And, but during that whole summer, the newspapers had a field day with the frightening prospect of President Chester Arthur. Just saying it caused shivers down the spine of all of America. And nonetheless, though, he did have one person in his corner. And there was a... Uh, a woman who was disabled in New York City, who was a bit of a shut-in, she began to write letters to Chester Arthur. She began to write him letters, and these became very famous letters, and her, her letters are actually in the Library of Congress. She began to write him and said, you know, even your kindest opponents say that you will try to rise to the presidency, but even they say, but the presidency doesn't have the power to change a man, especially a man like Chester A. Arthur. But then she encourages him to say, I believe it can. And Chester Arthur, in the week that he was brought to the presidency, said something rather remarkable. He said, I was brought to the vice presidency by Roscoe Conkling, but I was called to the presidency of the United States by God Almighty. And people began to suspect that something was afoot. Because as soon as he ascended to the presidency, who do you think was licking his chops saying, aha, now I'm going to get all my appointments? Roscoe Conkling, the, the party boss of New York. And the very first work of Chester A. Arthur was civil service reform to eliminate the spoils system. He, in a sense, rose up, despite being such a dandy and a people pleaser, rose up as one who has been called to serve the country in such an august position and thumbed his nose and stood up against everything that had supported him all his life and brought about some of the most dramatic reforms in civil service that could have ever been imagined. 
As a matter of fact, at the, at the end of his presidency, uh, many, many then began to be really quite astounded and said that probably no other president was as respected by both friend and foe alike as Chester A. Arthur. He may have lost friends, but he had great respect. Even Mark Twain, who's so snarky about most public figures, even Mark Twain said, I doubt there will ever rise another administration equal to that of Chester A. Arthur. What he perceived to be, and very much was, the call of God had the power to change not only his own constitution, you know, the, the, the spine that, that he brought into the, back, into the White House was suddenly uh, really strengthened with steel for the resolve of what he would have to do. But, but, but likewise, it also then set him on a course that he understood was no longer going to be his agenda, but a greater agenda. Amen. We will now encounter Abraham in the pages of Scripture for a much more significant call. Yes, Chester A. Arthur may have led the United States in the 1880s. Yes, he may have brought about some reform. But when you look across all media and see everything that's going on in the news today, all of it comes back to what we're about to read right here. Genesis chapter 11. Starting in verse 27. We enter a new Toldot. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. By the way, that is meant to have a very ominous tone to it. And it does. Because what is being said here is that the one line that was of God's choosing, that the line of Shem that God was going to use is now like a flickering candle about to go out. And the last, to use another metaphor, link in the chain, is one that is not going to have another link apparently coming its way. And that is Abram and Sarai. She is childless and she is not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, uh, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Before I move on, this is a, a quick little map. It may not help too, too much here, but we're, we're well over in Babylon, which was the, the place of Abram's family, the place of, of Terah and, and the family line of Terah. Uh, they actually, at some point, do make a way over to Canaan. Matter of fact, in verse 12, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. Apparently, he perhaps had said that to the whole family because the family does pick up and leave and, and heads on up. And they, they make their way all the way up to past Nineveh, up to what is then later called Haran. Uh, and then from there, 
over to you know what we would know today as modern day Syria, there's Aleppo, and then down the coast. Why don't you just make a straight line right across? Uh, because that's, that's like a moonscape. Uh, that is the most barren land that you could imagine. There's a fertile crescent uh, that, that you have to travel, and, and that was the travel that they went by. Overall, this journey that we're about to see Abram take is just shy of 1,000 miles. No small feat for, for, for back in that day. But to even conceptualize of being called by God to go 1,000 miles away, you would barely have even a, an inkling that such a place as Canaan existed. 1,000 miles away. Uh, moving on to verse uh, chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Go. Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. And then comes a very special promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so we are. Before I read on, this magnificent promise of God, which God was good for, to the letter, is marked with the word blessing five times. Interesting in contrast to what up until this time in the fast forwarding through history of Genesis 1 through 11, particularly chapters 4, is, is a contrast to the five uses of the word curse that has occurred before it. Also, this blessing is a sevenfold division of blessing. The perfect blessing, the perfect number, the completion of blessing. God is saying from this point forward... I am offering a promise that is complete in its effect of the success and the, uh, the, the wonders that will come through the blessing that I now give you. And so with that blessing before him, so Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. You know, it's interesting because you have this balance all the time in Hebrew literature. And it's called inclusio or chiasm. Uh, but, but you have kind of the first and the second uh, being the same and then something unique in the middle. Uh, for Abram's life, he spends 75 years with his father and family. And then he spends 25 years without his father and family. And then he spends the last 75 years of his life with his family and with the sons of his promise, which is, which is interesting. This occurs quite a bit. Just thought I'd throw it out there. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Herod. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. That's kind of right in the middle of, of, of Israel, uh, Shechem. Why mention the great tree at Morah at Shechem? Because it is probably a, an area of idolatry, of idol worship. Uh, it was often 
kind of the, the case that a, a large oak or terebinth tree, probably an oak tree, uh, would have been so magnificent that would have inspired some sort of worship by the, the, the pagan peoples of, of that area. He uh, then goes on to say, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, and we don't know how he appeared. The appearing of the Lord is called a theophany. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple other places. I'll mention it a lot when we get to Genesis 15. But some sort of a theophany comes before him. The appearance of the Lord. And he says to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. There is no law. There's no Ten Commandments. There's nothing that says build an altar. This was the response of one who has just spent time with God. And also the realization that what had been taken away from Adam now seems to be coming back. That the Lord is coming back to be with us. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And now then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Uh, the Negev is the southern portion. It sets us up for the next story, which is Abram and Sarah going down to Egypt, because that's just beyond the southern portion of Israel. But what we see going on with Abram here is the radical call that he's been given. He rises up uh, to a degree that would even make Chester A. Arthur look anemic, but rises up to this call to now begin to live out the call and the promise and the power of the call that God has given to him. As he works his way through even Canaan, he gets to Canaan and imagine the intimidation. You've got some people along with you and some tents and some camels and some livestock and that's it. But you're going against nations that have set up very special places of idol worship. And right next to those places, whether that be in, in Shechem at the great tree uh, in the south, in each of those places, what does Abraham go ahead and do? He builds an altar to Yahweh. As, as though he is kind of claiming his ground that is not yet his. It's merely a promise. But because he believes so firmly in the promise, here he is already claiming the ground. In a sense, kind of scenting the promised land with faith. With faith and trust in this great God. And so as we look at the power of the call, I want to look at it. Uh, from, from three different aspects. First is, we are called to trust. Abram is called by God. And here it says, go. Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. Uh, and then he kind of has some really cool promises. But there's nothing that he can kind of put on his calendar. Right? Nothing that he can kind of plan in his retirement planning program. And I often have Bible studies with people that are seeking God, trying to figure out a relationship with God. And as the study progresses, I often get a lot of questions from people. Uh, if, if, if someone's single, of course, they'll say, so can I still kind of, you know, do this or do that? Or, you know, marry that person or this person? Uh, can I still work in this job or do this? You know, and sometimes I get caught in that trap and I, and I get the, the, the checklist of all the questions that they want to have answered before they kind of go all in and really follow the Lord. 
And as I kind of go through and maybe try to show you, well, here's, here's what you need here, here's what you need to do here, here's how the Bible stipulates on that. And, and I realize I'm not doing anybody any favors by actually answering all of those questions. Because the call to follow God is an all-in, all-out trust in God. Many of you have some sort of experience with the military here. And and you probably have people who are getting ready to go into the military that say to you, okay, so when I go to my handler, when I go to the, 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 the person that helped me to enlist, so I'm thinking I should try to see if they'll stipulate, if they'll make sure that I could end up here, or if I can make sure that this happens there, or if I can end up in this sort of a position and that kind of training. And, and you who are experienced are laughing even now. <laughs> Patting that young man or the woman on the back and saying, yeah, go ahead, see how that goes. Because when you decide to answer that call, to enlist, you're not going to be making any sort of negotiating demands or even suggestions. At that point in time, your life is not your own. So it was with Abram, and so it is with any of us who answer the call of Jesus Christ. This is a call of radical trust in Jesus. And before you're able to kind of go all in with Jesus, If you still want to hold on and say, well, I will, but I just want to make sure before I do so that I'm really making sure that this will will, will kind of come out the way that I want it. It may not come out the way that you want it. It may be completely upside down, but doesn't matter because it's a good and gracious God who has called you and will empower you and will guide you throughout the rest of your life under the powerful call of God. The call of God at its heart is a call to surrender your will to his will. I'm sure Abram was tempted perhaps to go back to Ur, to go back to the big city, to go back to the familiar. But instead, he went into the teeth of enemy territory with a strange people in a strange land because his life was now Guided by an unmeasurable trust in God. Immeasurable trust in God. Uh, As a matter of fact, it says of Abram in Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to the place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So God's call to Abram is, go! And Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later. (laughs) Later on, he's going to say to him, sacrifice Isaac. And everyone's going to perhaps want to say, why? And God's going to say, I'll explain it later. This is the kind of trust that God Almighty is looking for, not only from Abraham, but from any of us that would answer the call that is given. I mean, you may say, well, but I'm not called in the way Abraham is called. You know, when Jesus calls you, it says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. You know, earlier, before he says this bombshell, large crowds are traveling with him 
And a couple of verses earlier, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And as if that's not big enough, and think about Abram leaving his family. Think of the progression that God gave to Abraham. Abram, Abraham, kind of means father, father of many. Very, very similar terms there. But think of the progression. He says, leave your land, leave your nation, your clan, leave your family. And just you, you go. You go to that promised land. As a matter of fact, the King James Bible doesn't just say go. It says get thee out. (laughs) Because it's very tempting, I think, for Abram to be able to say, well, I I will go, uh, but you know what? We're making progress as a family here. Like we were down in Ur, but now look at that. We're like halfway already, God. Like I think with a little bit more momentum, and if I can kind of somehow seed a little bit more encouragement to the family, I, you know what? I think I get them all to go, God. And the, the whole bunch. You, I, wouldn't you rather have all of that? You know, God just says to him, "I appreciate your strategizing, but let me say it to you clearly: get thee out." Or as, as some more modern people say, get, go yourself. Go, if, yes, it's great that you're in a religious family. That's great that there's some sort of a heart for God that got you this far. But I'm not interested in people only willing to go to Heron. And I don't know what you grew up in, but I grew up in exactly that. I grew up in a family and in friendships that were only willing to go to Heron. Sure, they wanted to get out of, of some of the mess that, that might have been in their life. Nobody's, nobody's interested in living in a cesspool of sin all their lives. And, and sure, we're, we're happy to, in, in a sense, be applauded by the cultural norms that we're, we're no longer drunkards and thieves and, and cursing and abusing. Uh, yeah, who wants that? Yeah, let's get away from that. But it's a big difference to go from Ur to Haran, to go from Haran to Canaan. Because when you go to Canaan... You are suddenly engaged actively in the great work of God. And we are called to trust. And as we're, as we're called to trust, and as we're called to get out, we need to recognize that if we have not given our will over completely, fully to God, then we're not Christians. Christianity is a call to trust completely. It is all based on faith. Faith is not some term you can make up the definition of yourself. There's no equivocating here. Trust is, again, a great synonym for faith. Either we trust ourselves over completely to Jesus, or we do not. And unless we're ready to give ourselves over completely to the great will and guidance and sovereignty of Jesus, well then stop trying to have it both ways because you're not a Christian. You are not. I needed somebody to tell me that. They told it to me probably a little bit more kindly than I'm saying it right now. But, but, but in a sense, they basically were helping me to see, yeah, 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 I get, yes, you go to church on Sunday. Oh, wow, you go on Monday nights to some sort of a Bible study as well. That, that, that's very interesting. How do you like Heron? Uh, you know, you need to get to Canaan. You need to actually be engaged in, in the full work of God. 
And, and it's time to stop choosing your Christianity based on, on the way that you think will be most comfortable to you. And, to know, and it, by the way, there's nothing scary about Heron. There's nothing scary about your denominational, uh, culturally assimilated church that you go to. There's nothing frightening that happens inside of those walls. It's just kind of nice. The biggest moment of anguish is when you have to stand up and turn to the person next to you and say, peace be with you. And, oh, I did it. Okay. Wow. How about that? But that there's nothing about that that is just all in hair on fire, excited to live the life for Jesus Christ. And, and that's what Jesus, unless you take up your cross, that's a call to revolution. And follow me. My goodness. Just go ahead and read about it. You cannot be a Christian. That's the, the words of Jesus. I'm not making up a new standard. Everybody else is. Who's not going by this very standard. We've got it written out clearly. But here's the beauty of the call. Abram had a powerful call. That was significant. And, and of a magnitude that you can't even begin to imagine. So do you. You don't have some call to attend church. You don't have some call just to kind of give some contribution. That, that's not your call. Your call is to be all in. Your call is to be part of the body of Christ. Your call is to be Christ to this world. To bring it with nothing less than that. It's what Abram did for all of the nations. And it's what we do now. <clears throat> Anything less is not trust. Secondly, we are called to bless. I will make you into a great nation, he says to Abram. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Why does God bless Abraham? So that you will be a blessing. Why is it that God blesses you? Why did God intervene in your life? Why did he open your eyes? Why did he convict you and bring you to a, a, a beautiful contrition that resulted in your faith and your service to him? So that you could be a blessing. But if we ever begin to get tempted with the idea of, okay, amen, thank you Jesus. Bible's great. But how can I arrange my life so that my life will be kind of the best blessing for me? And with blessing there we mean comfortable, successful, self-actualizing. How can I arrange blessing in my life in just such a way? The minute that you begin to ask, how can I live that's most blessed? You might as well be calling down curses on yourself. Because it's the upside down acceptance of the promises that God is trying to give. You are blessed by Him so that you can then go and be a blessing. Be a blessing to those who need to be blessed. What job should I take? I want to make sure that I have safety and comfort. Uh, where should I live? You know, I, I want to make sure that my kids don't fall behind by being in some school system whose you know, uh, SOL achievement levels are below par. God forbid that that was the case. Certainly the Lord wouldn't want that from me. Maybe if you need to go and be a blessing there, he does. What kind of stipulations are you putting on God? Rather than go anywhere, do anything. I'm Abraham. 
send me, I don't even, Canaan? Is that on the map? I guess I'll find out. Off we go. And to say, what a wild, wonderful ride it is in Christ. When we live with that kind of faith and trust, but live to know that I'm not just living in trust to claim trust. I'm living so that I can be a blessing. I'm going to actually make a difference in the world. All nations are blessed through Abraham. That's a big deal. But in your new covenant with Christ, you are just as called and you are to be just as much of a blessing to the world around you. If you seek to be blessed, you'll be emptied. If you seek to bless others, he'll bless you. If you live for the blessing of others, if you live to fill others up, God will fill you up. But in order to bless, just like Abraham, you need to go. Get thee out. Get thee out so you can actually bless somebody. You got to do something so you can bless somebody. You actually have to interact with the people that God has put around you so that you can bless somebody. Right now in your life, I'm sure there are people around you who need you to tell them the truth about something in their lives. And you don't want to do it. And it could be somebody here, but even more importantly, because you need to get thee out, you need to go. I mean, Jesus, of course, uses the same language. Go, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you at the end of the age. Yes, you need to go. But you don't tell them. You don't bless them. Why? Because I'm scared. Because the line is really long at this supermarket, even though I see everything that they just bought, and I know that I can really help this person out just based on this one purchase that I see in front of me right now. Am I judging? Sure. But... Not with like any great insight. Uh, and also because she's my boss. And if I, if I say it to her, oh, I don't know, could it blow back on me? Or, or maybe I care too much about my reputation. I care too much about my specially curated piece that I have affected in my neighborhood of what's acceptable interactions. And I'm going to slowly build up to something that's going to be really momentous. And you watch. They're going to be overwhelmed with the power of Jesus. No, that's not really what I'm doing. I'm avoiding the truth that's before me. I'm not setting the time and the place to be able to sit down and really be a blessing to the people that God has put in my life. Why? I don't want to look bad. I don't want to get out of my safety zone. I don't want to be criticized. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be open to criticism. You don't want to do any of those things. And you let those considerations harness you. And as a result, you're not a blessing to anybody. Who wants to live that way? Why not cast off those restraints? Cast off those restraints from the world. Cast off those restraints that are informed to us by our pride. And when we cast off those restraints, we'll be just as eager as Abraham to go ahead and build that altar next to that big oak tree. Build that altar right there in the Negev and thumb your nose. Right? Yeah, I, I, I get that, yes, your, your human secularism, of course, is in, in some way riles against what I'm telling you about Jesus right now. But please let me talk to you about this. 
It is so, let me tell you my story. Let me help you to understand the importance of this. If you are not engaged in blessing the nations, it's very interesting that nations will be blessed through Abraham, and Jesus says, go to all nations and go and bless them, making them disciples. But of course, all of this now seems a little overwhelming, doesn't it? Like, oh, I got to trust to that degree. Whoa, I got to engage to that degree. Well, my last point as I close out here is you are called despite our mess. You're called to trust. You're called to bless and called despite our mess. Look a little carefully now with me back in Hebrew, um, Genesis 11, verse 27. It's interesting that this toldot is the toldot of a man named Terah. Especially Terah living in Ur. The main idolatry of Ur was the worship of the moon. Terah's name means moon. This family line, the chosen family line by God for the spiritual blessing of the nations has corrupted itself to such a degree that Joshua, looking back at this, will say in Joshua 24, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons, Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and, you ready for this? They served other gods. Abraham wasn't called because he was all that. Abraham was called while he was an idolater. While he worshipped other gods. But yet God still called him. Why? Because the call of God is a gracious call. The call of God is not based on your performance. God looked down the corridors of history at Abraham. Not because he was doing so wonderfully. But because he loved him. And God looks at you through the eyes of love. You're saved by love. You're called to love. You're called by the love of God. Not because you're all that. Abraham may not have been much more than a Chester A. Arthur figure. But yet he was called. You may not be much more than a Chester A. Arthur figure. But you've been called. And you're not that anymore. That is who you were. What made Abraham great was the call of God. And what makes your life meaningful, significant, special is not the fact that you responded so well to a Bible study. It's the fact that you've been called by God. How are you called by God, you may say? You're called by God according to his purpose. Romans 8. 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians both make it really clear that you are called by God through the Word of God. When you are called by the Word of God, when you're transformed by the Word of God, the great Logos, that is Christ, the, the, Jesus Himself embodied in these scriptures, Holy Spirit inspired words, that when your life was disrupted and interrupted, when God through the corridors of time, arrange time and place where you would live and be so that the very genius of God could step in and interrupt your life. The promises of God could be made known to you. The will of God laid out for you. The empowering of God 
encouraged in you and also affected in you all through his great sovereignty. When, when all of that occurs, you are now equipped to do nothing less than to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In 2 Thessalonians, he, he says something interesting. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by God, because God chose you as his first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That Abraham was called, and he didn't have anything going on. The Thessalonians were called, and they were idol worshipers. And now they're living lives of amazing glory for the sake of God. And we were called. And we were quite dim and dark. But now we have purpose. Now we've been called. But you still might say, yes, I know, I know. But still, to trust that much, to go and bless to that degree, this calling comes from one who was called to something that you will never be called to do. You've been called by Jesus. But he answered the call for you. And he answered the call before you. Jesus had it going on. I think sitting on the throne in heaven. is a pretty cool place to be hanging. But when he decided to get thee out. He emptied himself. And he traveled to be here. He was called to do something of a proportion. And a depth. That we'll never be called to do. But he answered the call. Why? So that you could hear the call. So that you could be the call. So that you could be inspired by the the magnitude of how Jesus is able to affect that call. But you now having been called. You get to recognize that it's only by grace that you've been called. Your life would be empty and meaningless. So would mine. We'd be making up purposes. For ourselves. We don't have to do that anymore. And if we have to even wonder. How can I rise up to this? Realize that that, that Jesus already saw all that. He answered the call for you. So that you could be in that call in him. And now living lives of such fulfillment. And wonder and significance. My goodness. Let's go. Let's go and bless someone this week. We've been called to this. Be used by God to call them as well. Thank you.